This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this panel called Should I Stay or Should I Go? Planned Relocations. My name is Beth Ferris from the Institute for the Study of International Migration at Georgetown University, and I'm delighted to moderate this session on such an important and frankly understudied topic. You know, way back in 2010, the Conference of Parties identified displacement, migration, planned relocations as three forms of mobility that might be a, a, a adaptation response to climate change. Planned relocations has received less attention than the other two. It sometimes goes by different names in the United States. It's frequently referred to as retreat or managed retreat. Um, some of the experiences with planned relocations or retreat or resettlement, as it also is sometimes called, have not been the greatest. And it's important to understand what is involved, what works, what doesn't work, and and to consider how this might be used in the future as a way of responding to the challenges of climate change and to environmental hazards generally. Um, we're joined um, today by a very illustrious panel of experts bringing different kinds of expertise to this topic. So I'll briefly introduce them. You have the full bios on the website, and then we'll have a moderated discussion for about 40 minutes, followed by Q&A. Um, and I encourage you to put your questions in the Q&A um, uh, icon down at the bottom of your screen as we go along. Um, but to introduce people briefly, I'll start with uh, Salote Soko, who is the Senior Partnership Officer at the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee with particular responsibility for, for climate justice. Daniel Fitzpatrick is a professor at Monash University Faculty of Law in Melbourne. He's written extensively on property rights, particularly in the context of climate change. Erica Bauer is pursuing a doctorate at Stanford University and has worked for many years on the issue of climate change and, and mobility. And we have Marilessi Yi, who often goes by Mary, she just told us, who is currently a PhD research student at the University of Queensland. And she's from Fiji and can speak some to the experiences of, of Fiji in dealing with climate change and, and migration. So we're, we're going to have a discussion first and then Q&A. And so to start things off, I'll start with Salote. Um, you've worked for many years with local communities in the Pacific Islands on issues around climate change and climate change adaptation. What role does planned relocation play in these discussions in this region? Bola Vinaka and Vinakwakalevo Beth, Vinakwakalevo to Professor McAdams and the team at the Caldor Center for hosting this important conference and for having UUSC on this panel. To answer your question, Beth, until recently, perhaps within the past few years, planned relocation has not been a major point of discussion at the grassroots level. The discussion is still very much focused on the issue itself, on climate force displacement and how to avoid it and grappling with the enormous of the issue. 
where plan relocation is getting actively discussed varies based on the community itself, the extent of the impacts the communities are experiencing on the ground, their connection to civil society organizations and to the political context, specifically around advances that government bodies have on plan relocation and their engagement on climate change generally. In Fiji, for example, the government has adopted a plan relocation guideline to guide the relocation of communities at risk of climate displacement. Fiji's parliament has also passed a climate change act last month, which includes specific clauses that operationalizes the plan relocation guidelines. Fiji's government, uh, Fiji government's first plan relocation was in 2014 for the village of Narikoso in Kandavu, and the government has identified about 40 other communities that need to be relocated. The government's attention on this issue was due in part to the advocacy of some of the communities that are relocating today and the experiences of the Fiji government in supporting the relocation um, of some communities and households. In Tuvalu, an effort is being led by the people of Waitupu, which is one of the island communities in Tuvalu, and with the people of Kioa in Fiji, who are also from Vaitupu, to start to prepare for the situation where it will be necessary for their relatives back in Vaitupu and others from Tuvalu broadly to join their relatives in Kioa. They're not calling it planned relocation per se, but there are some elements of planning for an eventual relocation that are present in this work. In the Marshall Islands, our partners are researching the development of a culturally relevant governance framework that is grounded in community-based participatory decision-making that combines scientific understanding with traditional ecological knowledge to help communities and the government understand when, how, and where communities should move to hopefully inform government policy framework that will include planned relocation. And in these examples I'm sharing, I want to draw your attention to the organic leadership role that grassroots communities and the civil society organizations that are serving them and how they're taking this concept of planned relocation and challenging us to think about who is involved in the planning for planned relocation? To what extent are those who are most affected engaged in the planning, recognizing that there's a whole spectrum of ways that communities can be engaged? What factors are being considered? How is planned relocation designed? And what does the process look like? And does it really center the human rights and dignity of the people who are being directly affected? And this invaluable lesson can only be led through a community-based participatory process that is culturally appropriate. And I'll just end with what we understand as the top priority of many of the communities that we and our partners support and that they are the need to adapt in place the need to advance localized solutions to help them protect what they have, while also supporting their livelihoods and their cultural ties to their natural resources, their vanua in this time of climate chaos, the application of the traditional and cultural knowledge in addressing the impacts of the climate crisis, and the strengthening of community ownership over climate solutions, emphasizing in particular the critical role of youths, elders, women, and people living with disabilities. And while planned relocation is a safe, proactive way to address displacement risks from climate change impacts, it is still generally perceived as the last option because no one wants to lose their home. 
and if it is determined necessary by those communities, that they be the planners and designers for any planned relocation effort. Back to you, Beth. Well, well, thank you very much. And also for highlighting the issue of community engagement and community driven processes up front. I think that's something that comes through in many examples of planned relocation. Um, turning now to Daniel, another issue that always comes up in discussions about planned relocation is land, land tenure, how do you acquire land, and what happens to land back back home, but maybe you can speak about some of the challenges that arise with respect to law and, and land when it comes to talking about planned relocation. Okay. Thanks, Beth, and, and thanks to the Caldor Center. Um, you're just picking up on what uh, Salote was uh, said, which is very correct, that it needs to be a community-led process. The, the, the problem when it comes to land tenure is that, that, that it is normally a very formalised process. So it's government-led, you know, and, and the community is not involved enough. Uh, but by definition, it's a government-led process. And I've sort of divided the land tenure issues into who, what, where and when. Um, the, the first problem is who, is that because it's government-led, there is a tendency for undocumented landholders to miss out. Now, they don't always miss out in the Pacific, they've done it very well, but in other contexts, if you don't have documented tenure rights, then it's difficult to prove eligibility for relocation. Uh, and the irony, of course, and the tragic irony is that the, the, most, the most vulnerable to climate change and natural disasters uh, are those who are undocumented, and they tend to be living in informal settlements in coastal areas, and yet they're the hardest to locate for a government-led relocation process, by definition, it's formalised, it requires documentation. And, and so there's you know, intrinsic scope for um, discriminatory practices and, and, and exclusion and marginalisation. And, and part of that is that we're rolling out this hazard mapping process now, we're looking at coastal settlements and you know, we're trying to um, predict sea level rise. Um, but the hazard mapping process has become very technical uh, and it hasn't been brought in people and their relationship with land. And we don't have the platforms to, uh, to describe informal tenure relationships and connect those to the current hazard mapping exercise. And, and that, that makes for a, an overly technical uh, you know, uh, process that's formalised and, and, and people miss out. Um, when, when we look at what, the, you know, the key is that they get that the people who are relocated have uh, tenure security. They have a right to tenure security, tenure security in their new location. Um, but again, because it's a formalised government-led process, that tends to be channeled through, oh, you must be granted, you know, registered rights to land, that we must give you ownership to give you tenure security in your new location. Now, that's fantastic. If the people who receive those rights can aff afford formal own registered ownership rights. The experience has been that in, in cases of relocation, that the, the most vulnerable, the most poor, even when they get the benefit of relocation, they tend to move out and they go back to an informal settlement because it's too expensive or too inconvenient, the new location. So again, people are missing out and there's a land tenure story there because formal property rights are too expensive in our current systems. Where? Um, because it's a government-led process, in my view, far too much is made of government expropriation of land so converting land into public land or state land uh, in order for it to be made available for relocation. 
So it's a compulsory land acquisition or expropriation or a taking, as they say in the United States. Um, and again, because that's government-led, that's inherently problematic for a whole for a whole range of reasons. And the role of community mechanisms to provide land or private land markets, so the ability to lease land or to purchase land or to form a co-op to purchase land, has been underplayed and, and in favour of this sort of monolithic government-led uh, process. Um, and then finally, when a critical point is that uh, many cases of planned relocation, as was said, it, it comes up as a last resort. I think it should be a last resort, um, but it often comes up in the context of displacement, you know, and then people after disasters, they're displaced and the government says, oh, we're building back better. We're not allowed allowing you to go home because that's a vulnerable area, right? It's a coastal settlement that's exposed. Uh, and so these people are displaced and say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll relocate you. And this has obviously happened in the Philippines after Typhoon Haiyan. And after displacement, it takes too long to relocate people, to access the land, to work out who should, who should be eligible to provide secure land rights. And so the people who are displaced, often they just, they just to, to create their own durable solutions, hopefully durable solutions to displacement. And so relocation as a measure after displacement is highly problematic. Um, so there's a bunch of implications for that, but I, I think the, the key point is that as a government-led process, it intrinsically gives rise to land tenure problems. And it sounds like those who have the least are often left out of the whole process, which is unfortunately <laughs> the case in, in other situations as well. Um, let's turn to Mary or Meryl um, You know, First, maybe tell us a little bit about your research on climate change adaptation in Fiji and your experience as a teacher in the, in the Pacific Islands. What are students saying about climate change mobility and specifically about the possibility of relocations? Uh, thank you, Beth. Bulavinaka um, to our fellow panelists and um, a big Bulavinaka um, to all those tuning in today. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, as, as Fijians, you know, we usually um, ask ourselves, like, what, what was our role in climate change? And, you know, for Fiji and other Pacific Island countries, you know, we've contributed um, almost nothing to global warming. And the effects of uh, climate change on Fiji, um, they are not predictions for the future, but already being experienced in the present. And while the Fijian people have been um, adapting to the changing climate and uh, further adaptation effort will be required as the effects of um, climate change intensifies. And in Fiji, some climate adaptation um, initiatives across Fiji uh, have not been effective or sustainable. And you know, for adaptation, like mentioned by our um, previous uh, speakers, in order for it to be successful and uh, sustainable, it should be a collective action led by the community, uh, determined by their own needs and their values, and you know, rather than by external agencies. Uh, in order to achieve a more a future-proof uh, community of Fiji. So this is where my, my project or my research comes in, uh, in Fiji, uh, where I'm using the, the Fijian Vanua research framework, uh, which aligns with uh, principles uh, that value community knowledge and uh, participation. And I'm also integrating uh, the three concepts, um, mobility, 
climate adaptation and development. And this will ensure that uh, when relocating people and communities, if it does happen, you know, it'll, they'll maintain their cultural and kinship connections and also their livelihoods. So Beth, I looked at communities in Fiji that are affected by climate related risks, communities that have uh, relocated. And also I looked at communities um, that have uh, chosen to stay in the face of climate change. And one of the emerging um, uh, themes that comes out from my, my research on climate adaptation in Fiji is uh, place belongingness, you know, as a product of uh, personal, uh, ancestral and historic, uh, cultural, economic and legal connections to place. Uh, you know, despite being highly exposed to coastal erosion and flooding, I see that communities in Fiji um, you know, they prefer to, to, to remain in place. You know, there's so much value uh, in in-depth qualitative critical analysis, you know, for, for why populations choose to remain, especially applicable to us in Fiji, uh, as we have a very strong connection uh, to our land and our vanua. You know, and such preferences for immobility must be accounted for in relocation planning and, and uh, policy. And as a teacher, I have been uh, teaching um, young Pacific Islanders for, for the last 15 years. And you know, for these young people uh, in the Pacific today, they are born into a, a generation where due to no fault of theirs, they've inherited a climate crisis. And you know, from my experience, what I hear from them, like firstly, you know, these young Pacific people, they are a very, uh, they are amazing human beings. And they know that the, the global climate is changing and is caused by human activities. And they are pleading with, with nations around the world to please take responsibility for their actions. Uh, you know, they don't accept this fate, what's happening to them. They have hope that uh, they are willing to, to fight for the islands, to protect our culture you know, our, our habitats, our resources. Um, and, you know, Beth, for, for these young people in the Pacific, uh, saving our islands and our culture is not a, a passing phase or an extracurricular activity that they add to their CV. For them, the stake is higher when it comes to, to climate change. Yes, thank you, Beth. Thank you, and you certainly see some of the and we're going to turn now to Erica Bauer. Erica, you recently completed a study looking at several hundred cases of planned relocations. I wondered what observations and trends you observe from looking at these cases. Thanks, Beth. And indeed, to also um, my collaborator in this work, Sanjula, and all of the actors who made this possible, including the Caldera Center, colleagues at Platform on Disaster Displacement, and also related research that's been undertaken at GIZ and IOM. So it's truly a, a collaborative effort. In this panel so far, we've heard a lot about Fiji, and we've heard also elsewhere in this conference about relocations taking place in Alaska, Carteret Islands, but where else have planned relocations taken place? And, and clearly, as uh, Mary just shared, there's so much that we can learn from in-depth case study analysis. But what can we learn from an intentionally global and comparative approach? 
So I want to highlight nine um, observations today from this work, looking at really places, cases of planned relocation documented across English language, academic and in gray literature. Um, there, there are a lot of things that we can learn. So first, we can get an insight about this question of where. Um, 308 cases across all uh, six across 60 countries and all inhabited continents. Understandably, as we've already heard today, there's a, a hot spot in the Pacific. We can also learn something about this question of why. So the most common hazard driver identified across these cases was floods. But interestingly, a lot of the cases were identified in multi-hazard contexts. Um, multiple hazards that happen both sequentially or simultaneously that led to a relocation decision. For example, in Shishmaref, a Native Alaskan tribe, the United States, it wasn't just floods and coastal erosion that have already happened, but it was also anticipation of future risks associated with sea level rise and, and melting permafrost. Um, so we typically think about cases uh, as already shared as either reactive or proactive, um, but this mapping exercise really showed that most cases like Shishmaref fall somewhere along the middle of a continuum. And maybe a more useful articulation or, or a distinction is whether or not these relocations have happened before communities have been displaced or after, and what opportunities there are for communities to return to their places of origin in the interim. Also on this point of, of drivers, the mapping showed that a lot of relocations take place not only in the context of environmental hazard factors, but also political, social, economic motivations. Jane, in her introduction, mentioned this paradigm of, or this conceptual framework of multi-causality. Does multi-causality also apply at the scale of a whole community or a government that's supporting relocations? Understanding these multi-causal um, motivations is essential to safeguard against uh, potential misuse of the narrative of disaster risk reduction or climate change adaptation to hide or to greenwash other more covert motives for relocation. A third thing that we can learn from a global mapping is about this question of when, the timeline. Many cases have enormously long timelines from the moment of initiation to the completion of the physical move. Um, and that's even before this complex process of integration, rebuilding a sense of home. This really underscores quite how complicated these planned relocation processes are. A fourth thing that we can learn is about this question of how. We typically think of a planned relocation as following one very specific spatial pattern. A community is moving from one site of origin to one destination. But this mapping showed that a lot of cases are more complicated. Some involve many communities of origin that are merged into one destination site. And this has important implications for policy and practice. Um, how do you think about a governance structure um, or participation mechanisms when people are moving to a common site? Other cases involved one community of origin that's split to many different destinations, raising questions about, um, again, what happens to that sense of community when it's being disintegrated. We also looked more in depth at 34 cases that had that single origin to single destination pattern. And we found that, in fact, a lot of these cases are surprisingly short distances, less than two kilometers. And they're also surprisingly small, often less than 250 households. 
We also learned that about half of those cases took place after displacement had already happened. We learned something about this question of who initiates. It's already been discussed. There's some cases, approximately half, that were initiated by community members themselves, and another half that were initiated by government actors, NGOs, or multiple combinations of stakeholders. There's an interesting relationship with the amount of participation that community members are able to have throughout the process, depending on whether it's been initiated from within or externally. We found surprisingly few cases that had assessments or legal frameworks. Salote mentioned the Fijian Planned Relocation Guidelines. These are really exemplary as a national framework. And it'll be really interesting to see how relocations are enacted differently post um, this, this framework's existence. Most of the cases documented in the database are, are from before. Final question that we can really start to learn about through the global comparative approach is about challenges, many of which were already highlighted today around livelihoods, around access to land, around ongoing hazard exposure, even in destination sites, around infrastructure and housing, and critically around loss of heritage and, and a sense of place. Uh, this report and the, the global data set that it's associated with are available online, and they're really just a starting point for future research that's looking at relationships between these characteristics and really assessment of of outcomes, that question of, of success that Mary mentioned. And um, finally, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I think there are so many cases that are undocumented or underdocumented and further efforts that seek to um, monitor and identify cases in other languages um, in other sort of types of data um, can really help to guide policy and practice that um, mitigates harms and, and promotes more dignified and durable solutions. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Erica. Also pointing to the need for further studies and research and understanding all of these cases. I'm going to try to have another round with you all before we open it up to the broader Q&A. And I'll start with Salote. I was going to ask you, Salote, um, you know, about the possibility of movement between countries, not just internal planned relocations, but within the Pacific. But I also see that there's already a question in the chat, so I'm going to try to incorporate that as well. A question from, from Jane McAdam about the example of Vaitupu Kyoa, saying this is a, a unique case, and asking whether those from Tuvalu would still need to be granted visas by Fiji and permanent opportunities to, re, to settle if re relocation is to be a long-term solution. So when you're thinking about international relocations, I'm, I'm wondering if you could respond to that as well. Sure. Thank you, Beth, and thank you, Jane, for that question. Um, in the case of Vaitupu, you know, the conversation right now is very much at the grassroots level. It's the community leaders in Kiowa that have uh, connected with their relatives back in Vaitupu, uh, many of whom represent um, active civil society organizations who are advocating, um, you know, for their own government to take up this um, mantle more strongly and with more confidence to start planning ahead, but also who are 
are actively, you know, calling on international governments to do their part because they don't want to leave their home. So it's not really a, you know, a, a, a dichotomy of, of options. They're really calling on, on both parties, um, their government and the international community to do what's best. Um, so the because the conversation is just between grassroots leaders, um, what they've agreed on for the next few years is for Kiowa to just build the infrastructure that they need to allow um, relatives back in Vaitupu to come. There hasn't been any discussion about, you know, visas or um, any, uh, the use of legal frameworks to actually allow them to come legally to Kiowa. I think the conversations is very much still at the, the grassroots level about how we can prepare. Um, they're also talking about um, sending food back to, to Vaitupu because um, in the past few years, food crops has really um, significantly diminished their, their ability to plant crops to, to continue to live on Vaitupu has uh, been affected by rising sea levels. So the people on Kyo, because it, they have more land, uh, more arable land, and just more land in general to plant, um, the, the, that's where the conversation is at, helping them to subs, uh, in their subsistence, but also um, acquiring resources to help them build uh, and improve. There's a, a community hall that's also a church in Kiowa that they're looking at um, as an emergency evacuation site in case uh, something happens in Vaitupu and people need to, to um, be relocated to safety. Um, but they also estimate that the whole of Kiowa can accommodate the whole of of the whole of Tuvalu. So um, I think that um, in the next few years, they'll probably start approaching the Tuvalu's government to start making that um, sort of cross-border migration more legally applicable um, and doing all that research that's needed. Um, and to your question, Beth, um, I think generally, you know, there's, there's a lot of history in the Pacific about how uh, communities have moved across borders. Um, in addition to that example for Kiowa and Vaitupu, there's also the stories of how the Banabans, along with um, the people of Kiribati and Tuvaluans were, um, I would say, forcefully relocated to Rambi Island due to phosphate mining. Um, and there's definitely lessons there that we um, you know, are learning today. I think within the, within the past few decades, um, at least with the partners that we're working with, they're still looking at, you know, just planned relocations within um, their jurisdictions, within the national governments. Um, but there are also some important lessons that we're learning just from those, from these planned relocations, from these internal uh, planned relocations. Uh, for example, in Fiji, you know, the planned relocation guidelines that Fiji, the Fiji government has, it's it was just, uh, drafted in 2018, 2019, but the relocations that the Fiji government has led preceded these planned relocations. So there are definitely lessons uh, that we are also learning as civil society about how that move happened, especially for Vunindongoloa. Um, we're finding that who controls uh, the funding for these relocations sort of determines whether the relocation was successful or not. But also financing is of these planned relocations is what um, makes it, you know, even possible. So I would just want to raise that, you know, financing is an important aspect. Um, in addition to the policy framework, in addition to, you know, community participation, you know, the 
what really determines whether planned relocation actually happens and whether it's culturally sensitive and whether it's um, for, it meets the needs for communities, depends on financing and who's funding it. So I would just wanna bring in that voice as well into this conversation. Um, I would also wanna point out, you know, our uh, we um, mentioned, I think, in the in one of the previous discussions um, about Tulele Pesa and the relocation of the Cataract Islands. Um, Tulele Pesa is a is a close partner of UUSC, and um, there's sort of this. Um, assumption that the people of the Cataract Islands have relocated. They've already moved out of the Cataract Islands to Bougainville, but that's not the case. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, our partner did a, a headcount back in the Cataract Islands, and they found that there are 430 families still living in the Cataract Islands today. Most of them are young families, are young parents with an average of about seven children per household. That's a very, very young population. Um, and they are facing significant food security issues. Um, there's a lack of government policy um, in, in Bougainville and the whole of Papua New Guinea to help support Tulele Pesa, but also this relocation is led by Tulele Pesa themselves, which is an NGO, a civil society group that doesn't have reliable source of funding, that doesn't rely, have access to land, but at the same time, they're moving into Bougainville, a place that um, is still reeling with um, entrenched trauma and violence from the C Bougainville Civil War. So, you know, when we talk about um, planned relocation and we, we're, I think our mind automatically goes to people leaving their home in a planned, organized, structured way and settling in a community where they are accepted, but that's certainly not the case and the Pacific is teaching us that. Um, so I would want to say that, um, you know, the Pacific's experience um, has been quite complex. Um, it has uh, taught us, it is teaching us still a lot of lessons. Um, what has happened historically and how it's happening today, it certainly isn't perfect. There's a lot of concerns about how um, even the most best planned relocation can still perpetuate the violation of human rights. Um, it's still a form of displacement. Um, you know, in the case of Papua New Guinea, planned relocation is gradual. It needs a lot of financial resources. It requires multiple stakeholders to come to the table to inform the best way forward. Um, and in the case of Papua New Guinea, it also means confronting the present and very real threat of violence and trauma that the host community um, is still healing from. So there's a, 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 a multiple layers and multiple dimensions of, of um, loss uh, and healing uh, and violence um, that this whole conversation brings up that um, I think we'll really need a whole of society, a whole of, um, you know, research uh, dynamics and fields to really, to really address. Thank you. And also for pointing out the complexity and the importance of money in dealing with, with these issues. I want to I come back to, to Daniel, but also to remind the audience to please put your questions in the Q&A so that we can um, respond to as many as possible. Um, Daniel, you pointed out some of the challenges around land, land tenure law generally in these, in these relocations. I mean, how, how helpful are current policy frameworks in dealing with these challenges? Thanks, Beth. Yeah, my main point is that um, 
is that current policy frameworks actually mention land tenure uh, very little. I've, I've just completed a study of the Pacific uh, for a Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat, and we reviewed climate and disaster uh, policy instruments and, and surprisingly little mention of land tenure, even though everyone recognises how important it is. And so I think integrating or aligning the land tenure frameworks with climate and disaster policy frameworks is, is really where we need to go. But that's probably a broader point, is that I think that across all these silos and sectors and sources of data and information and sources of resilience, we need to, we need to move to a more aligned, integrated uh, uh, approach. And so land tenure is just an example of that. Um, in my report for PIFs, I, I recommended a number of matters to, to, to align with uh, policy frameworks. One is introducing concepts of kinship ma mapping, uh, mapping kinship networks and, tra and trade networks, um, because the experience, and as our panellists have, have shown very clearly, is that um, if you move if you relocate through an established relationship, an established network, a cultural, a cultural process, it's, it's going to be much more successful, right? Now, not everyone has that opportunity and we've seen that with the Carterets, um, but it, being kinship mapping into the process and particularly highlighting the preference that people move in a contiguous way, right? You know, move next door, which is what Eric was saying is that so many cases are very small scale movements and they, and they are to be prior, preferred, right? The, the structures should prefer that. And, and that's particularly the case for land tenure. Um, the second point is uh, that vulnerability assessments, which are just proliferating, um, ha have not incorporated land tenure issues. So they're not identifying the vulnerable renters, the, the, the vulnerable secondary rights holders, the, you know, the, 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 the widows, the female headed households, the, the so-called squatters, or the people under under insecure lease arrangements, um, and, and yet they are a really important category of, of vulnerability. Um, so bringing land tenure questions early in the process, and that will then allow you hopefully to avoid some of these issues down the track with tenure insecurity and conflict with host communities. Now, part of that vulnerability assessment process is is that we really do need to engage in community-based risk reduction for the most vulnerable settlements. Uh, and, and that is an integrated approach where, where it's not just that people have access to hazard maps and risk maps, but we also know who's living where and what their relationship with the land and the marine resources and other natural resources are. And then, and then the community can develop a plan so that if, if this hazard occurs, this is where we will go. And this is a potential site for relocation. So there's a, a degree of planning for potential relocation in an integrated way through the community-based risk reduction process. And land tenure is essential to that. Um, the third point is that we, you know, that, that point about registered rights being too exp expensive, too inaccessible for the majority of the, of the global poor and the most vulnerable, um, means that we do need to move to much more of a tenure toolkit approach. Certainly, I know that in the Pacific, they're, they're, they're looking at, you know, strengthening mechanisms to lease customary land so as opposed to moving to government you know state land or expropriating land in order to provide it to the community you know ha having a, a mechanism where you have an agreement and arrangement with the, the local landholders uh, through a leasing structure um, in an informal settlement context you know there are, there's a lot of work being done on on a tenure ladder you know stages of tenure security short of 
registered ownership, and that's cheaper, more accessible, more likely to cover the vulnerable. Um, but, you know, there's so many issues here in, in terms of how that process integrates with human rights frameworks. So for example, the right to tenure security, you know, at what point does a lease or a recognition of possession or a, a recognition of, of a cust customary right satisfy the human right to tenure security? Um, because by implication, what I'm saying is that the, often the perfect is the enemy of the good in, in land tenure policy. Um, and if you try to give an absolutely perfect property right to someone who uh, has been relocated, then, then that can actually serve to exclude the poor over the long run. And so where, where's, the, where's the threshold for satisfying human rights uh, while also preventing some of these land tenure problems? Thank you. I mean, I think every as we talk on and on, you realize how complicated these issues really are. Um, turning to, to Mary again, when you think about planned relocations in the Pacific, primarily internal, possibly eventually um, cross-border, I mean, what are the implications for people's relationship with the land? Uh, thank you. Um, thank you, Beth. Um, so in, in, a, in a Fijian society, the notion of land or vanua, you know, is, is acknowledged and used as a powerful instrument uh, in securing conformity and forging uh, solidarity. Uh, you know, for us, we, we cannot live without our land, uh, which we depend on for, for nourishment, uh, shelter and protection, uh, well, as well as, um, a source of security and a basis for identity and uh, belonging. Uh, uh, if planned relocation does take place, uh, it will definitely separate uh, us, the people, from our in inherited uh, ancestral land. Uh, also, if we give our ancestral land to the, the new arrivals, it's likely to cause uh, more tensions. So when a community relocates from their place of birth, you know, a place they value so much, uh, their cultures may be weakened. Uh, while it is uh, important to focus on uh, environmental, uh, economic, and political aspects of uh, climate change, uh, it is equally vital, uh, Beth, to emphasize the cultural and social norms uh, that may increase or reduce uh, the exposure to climate-related risks. Um, you know, vulnerable communities in Fiji, Beth, you know, they realize that the seriousness of the situation, uh, but their social and cultural values prevent them from relocating. Uh, you know, relocation must be conducted in a, in a holistic manner that befits community and conserves the quality is that uh, to relocation uh, could definitely um, guarantee success. Thank you. And, and you brought this question of success. I mean, what is success? And I want to turn to Erica for just very brief comments on looking at outcomes of relocation. Um, I mean, I know you're doing some work on this right now, but what kind of things go into assessing the outcome, whether or not a relocation is successful? Thanks, Beth. In this conversation, the term 
successful has come up so many times. We often refer to cases and label cases as successful. Um, but I want us to really interrogate that concept. What do we mean by success? Um, success for whom? For the relocating communities, for the host communities, for people who've decided not to move, for society writ large? And on what time horizons? Are we thinking about 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, someone's great-great-grandchildren? Also, what, what metrics are we using to evaluate success? Are we thinking about this in terms of dollars saved and, and cost-benefit analysis? Are we thinking about this in terms of risk reduced? Um, or are we thinking about this in terms of human dignity, of livelihoods, of human rights? I think we need to have maybe a more nuanced conversation about this idea of success. Um, and in particular, um, I think it's really about this idea of, of trade-offs. Um, for example, a relocation where the destination site is very close to the origin may be very quote unquote successful in terms of preserving cultural heritage in terms of access to livelihoods, but also it may have ongoing hazard exposure to the same hazard sea level rise, for example, that the community was trying to move away from. So I think this idea of trade-offs is really helpful, thinking about trade-offs across populations, across time, and across discipline, um, which really maybe underscores the need for interdisciplinary approaches and ways of thinking. Um, you also asked about um, what might lead or contribute to success. I think if we define success as uh, risk reduction, then assessments are really critical. If we define success as um, uh, relocated person's holistic well-being, then community initiation, community engagement at all points throughout the process, whether to move, where to move, how to move, when to move, um, site development, as Salote has mentioned. Um, funding, again, is really, really essential and advanced planning throughout the process. Um, and one last point, I think the guidance and the toolbox that UBEF were so instrumental in, in uh, developing back in 2015 and 2017 really provide important starting points for a conversation about what is success and how do we how do we really evaluate it systematically. Thank you, and, th and thanks to all the panelists. Um, I'm going to turn now to some of the questions in the in the Q and A, and I'm going to try to to link a couple of these together as time is as limited. I mean, one question is, you know, these processes of planned relocation are highly politicized. Um, I'm, the, the question is, you know, whether you could reflect on the politicized nature of this experience. I'm related to this question of. Um, you know, is it better to wait and see, to see how things develop, or do we need to take advantage of the need for a long lead time to plan for it? When should these discussions take place? Should they, you know, particularly focus on specific situations, or should governments and others be thinking more, more broadly? And then the question of whether there are any good practices with respect to starting complex conversations on the potential for planned relocation early on. I mean, I think those questions are all kind of related, the political nature of decisions, when to begin discussions, and are there any examples of good practices? So who would like to jump in first? I see you're all clamoring to jump in. Okay, Mary. <laughs> Thank you, Bella. Give it a go. So, uh, so in Fiji, 
2018, the government of Fiji um, identified over uh, 40 communities, 40 villages uh, needing immediate relocation due to climate related uh, consequences. And, uh, you know, this is the reality of climate change here in, in my country. So when you're looking at relocation, you know, it's a, it's a multi-year planning uh, careful process when you're trying to figure out uh, where and how to relocate, uh, you know, uh, what resources and mechanisms, you know, are needed or required. And we have to always remember that uh, at the center of relocation is, is the people. So, you know, relocation as adaptation, you know, must be considered always as the last resort. And in Fiji, regardless of whether a couple of households, just a few households, if they are encountering the effects of environmental change in, a, in an indigenous village, Fijian village, you know, we should not wait. We should all be vigilant and cautious and start learning more about this situation. And as it is, these mobility patterns, you know, are evolving under an, you know, an altering climate. So the time to be thinking, I, I believe, and planning is now uh, to ensure that the best adaptation and um, strategies are implemented. Yes, but sometimes there's a contradiction between needing a long time to plan well and to develop inclusive participatory processes, and yet the immediacy of the threat may not give you that time. And, you know, when is the appropriate time to begin these discussions? Is it, you know, after, after a sudden onset disaster really forces your hand, or, or is there a place where you can begin talking even if you don't need to implement immediately? Salote, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's been the case, um, especially for the United States. We wait until um, a disaster happens in another part of the world, and then we start talking about, um, you know, our immigration laws and how we can um, accommodate um, this new group of, of people who have been displaced. Um, and it's certainly the case as well. I think in the Pacific, New Zealand's uh, sort of wait and see uh, approach is, is sort of irresponsible, I would say. Um, like Vero Alisi mentioned earlier, it's it's the climate crisis is happening now in the Pacific. Relocation has already started happening. We see an increase in um, even looking at Pacific um, mobility, economic mobility as um, a way, labor mobility rather, as a way to get um, sort of to, to try and address this um, issue of displacement and people um, needing jobs uh, to um, for their families to survive. Um, so I think um, having a more proactive approach, but also we've learned from previous lessons that previous relocations that it takes a lot of time and we don't have that that is one thing that we do not have um, across the world we need to be uh, proactively thinking about it government needs to um, you know pull their socks up and start um, engaging from the bottom up I know that their approach is not 
that's not their approach at all, but that needs to change. Um, and I think we need grassroots mobilizations to really strengthen our messaging around this issue, because so far it's been about, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, adaptation, uh, but loss and damage and displacement is sort of always on the margins, especially, you know, with COP26 coming up, we need to make it uh, front and center and, and, and start using our voices uh, to uh, move these diplomats in the way that we need them to move. Um, there's a lot of responses there, Beth, but I, I pass it on back to you. Good, thank you. Uh, a couple of other questions have come up and, and Daniel, I'll turn to you for, as a lawyer for this one. The question came up, when land is abandoned, do people maintain their UN status or status as an independent nation? Okay, um, well, that's a, there's two aspects of that. One is the international law element of that right. uh, is, is something outside my area of expertise. Maybe we'll, we'll pass it on to Jane to, um, um, <clears throat> but I think the short answer is no. Um, the, in terms of sort of domestic property law, uh, uh, if it's, um, Look, it's hard to satisfy the requirements for abandonment. If you have any intention to retain that property right to the land, then then you retain the property right, even though you're not living there. So, if that if that right was recognised before, then you still have it. You, you don't you don't give it away just because you've, you're not physically present on the land. So there has to be an intention to abandon for you know for all time and or an agreed abandonment. So. The short answer is no, and, and, and I totally agree with what Mary was saying, is that built into the, all these processes must be some mechanism to maintain uh, links to the home, uh, home territory. Um, <clears throat> and also, you know, making the point that yeah, it's, it's truly, truly a, a traumatic process to make people move, you know, we just have to accept that. Uh, so that's the first point is that no, no, abandonment is very hard to satisfy. And, um, uh, but it should be clarified what your rights to the home home territory are if you have been re relocated. And there's plenty of examples where, where small numbers have been left behind to try and maintain that link. Um, and that's a good thing. Um, but just quickly on the other matters, I mean, one, I, I think relocation must be framed as a political, politicised issue, not as a technical issue. From the very beginning, it must be framed. And the risk is we go to this sort of this commonalities of, of policy frameworks at a global level is that we do make it technical. Um, but, you know, the, the land tenure story is the ultimate story of the politicised nature of, of relocation. And the point about timing, I absolutely agree with what Zelotti is saying, is that it, the possibility of relocation must be built into risk reduction now. And um, it, it, you know, and, and we, we prefer small scale, close relocation rather than any inter-island. You know, that's just disastrous. But we, we must start planning for, for relocation now and then integrate that with all the other frameworks because the way in which relocation integrates with adaptive migration and with disaster displacement is also critical. And so if we silo relocation too much, then we, we've actually exacerbated the problem. Uh, there's another question here about whether bilateral or multilateral agreements are the best way forward. I imagine those would apply mainly in international relocations, which we haven't seen much of um, up yet. And just to comment on the politicized nature, certainly in the United States, you know, in some communities, 
it's almost forbidden to mention the word retreat, planned retreat, resettlement. It's, it's simply not up for discussion. The, uh, even when the environmental risks are great, sometimes their political motivations, such as the potential of losing your tax base and your, your community disappearing and politicians losing jobs and so forth that make it really difficult to bring up these issues. Um, um, I, I hate to bring the well. I hate to bring this up with three minutes left in our session, but I wonder if maybe we should kind of rethink this last resort bit. I mean, I mean, it's true. You should try everything else first before you think about moving a community. But sometimes, you know, when there's so much environmental risk, you know, all the young people may leave because they, they will see a future for themselves in other cities. And, and so when, when it comes time to relocate a community, you may end up with, you know, people who are immobile or older or have it more difficult to restart a vibrant, dynamic community with, with those who were able to move on their own earlier. And I, I just think it's something maybe we ought to dare to think about, even though you know people don't want to move. And so planned relocation should be seen as a as a last resort. But but I'm afraid that we're, we're just about out of time. And I want to thank all of our panelists for, for speaking briefly. I mean these are complicated issues and you managed to convey a lot in three or four minutes each in your comments and to our audience for your perceptive questions and your attention. And especially once again to the Calder Center for making this conference possible. Um, I'll, I'll mention that the next session will be a side event organized by the Institute for Economics and Peace and the Australian Intercultural Society. That will take place at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Australian time. Everyone is welcome to join that. And uh, just again, a hearty thank you to all of you and good luck. And I hope in 10 years when we're talking about planned relocations, we won't have as much threat of climate change and can contemplate happier and, and more participatory outcomes. Thanks to you all. Bye-bye. Thank you.